This is Car Expert. There's a lot of OEM smartphone apps just simply have not been available locally, so it's great to see that we're finally getting that technology here. What are your thoughts on putting the R badge onto an SUV? I freaking love it. This car's got more engagement than the Golf. I can't believe I'm saying it. Do these sort of city-focused soft rotors actually have some off-roading cred? And the answer again is yes. Pleasure to join me this week, Mike Costello. Hello. G'day, Mandy. And g'day, William Stopford. G'day, Mandy Turner. Now, let's have a bit of a debate. I'm interested to hear what you guys uh, think of these two cars. They've, they've been revealed this week, the Mercedes-Benz EQS SUV and the BMW 7 Series. Both are a little polarising. Keen to hear your thoughts first, Will. Look, I'm going to say that I actually don't mind the look of the 7 Series. I think everyone was girding themselves for it to be hideous um, because the iX kind of uh, landed like a like a ton of bricks um, in terms of its exterior styling. Um, but even with split-level headlights, which is a bit unusual for a flagship luxury sedan, it actually looks good. It's It's got presence. Um the grille isn't as oversized as it is on the M3 and M4, but I will say the M3 and M4, I probably hated them at first, but then they very quickly grew on me. Um, so I think this looks great. The interior looks fantastic. Um, the the color and material choices uh, are, are look wonderful to me, but I think this is, uh, this is really interesting because it shows, we'll talk about another electric uh, vehicle that was revealed um, this week because the 7 Series uh, will now come in an all-electric i7 version for the first time. But it goes to show that the difference in electric vehicle strategy between BMW and Mercedes, uh, because BMW is doing uh, a lot of electric versions of uh, vehicles that of existing petrol vehicles that they have um, rather than developing a, a bespoke electric vehicle architecture that they're rolling out across a range of vehicles. Now, Mercedes-Benz, in contrast, they are doing electric versions of existing vehicles as well. The EQA is based on the GLA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they have uh, revealed yet another vehicle on their electric vehicle architecture. But before we talk about that, Mike, what do you think about the 7 Series? Um, it's definitely the most polarizing seven since the famous Bangle one of the early 2000s designed by American Chris Bangle. Um, and you know, it's funny, first impressions, not hugely sold on it. Although I do like the new slimline headlights. I think they work quite well against the massive kidney grill. What I would say though, is a lot of these polarizing BMW designs have really grown on me. The iX in person, I liked a lot more than in the pictures, we recently had the 2 Series Coupe, the new 2 Series Coupe. And again, in person, I thought that looked a lot more convincing than the pictures. So I'm going to hold my judgment on this. I'm not blown away yet, but I think, you know how sometimes, you know, I always think if, if say, a new Radiohead album drops, I need to listen to it 20 times until I really <laughs> yes. know if I like it or not because there's, le- there's layers and levels and, and intricacies in there that I may not get on first listen. And I feel like this design is one of those. I need to just just let it sink in. And, and maybe I'll change my opinion. It's definitely uh, polarizing and it's definitely bold. I'll give it that. <laughs> I, I've been waiting, uh, the, the, by the same token, I've been waiting to see a Mercedes-Benz EQS in person because I think when the photos first came out, I'm like, oh, I like this. And then over time I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure I like this. And now I'm thinking it's a bit blobby looking, but well, it could be one of those cars that has real presence in person. 
Where I'm confused by this is, so Mercedes-Benz, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Will, but they've already revealed the EQS, which is sort of the electric S-Class, the limousine. Um, But they're calling this flagship SUV, which I suppose is the GLS equivalent, they're calling it EQS as well. So they've got two cars called EQS. They're calling it EQS SUV, but they they box themselves into a corner because they did an electric version of... uh, uh, an electric SUV based on the GLC and they called it the EQC. And then I think they realized, oh, wait, you know, what happens if we ever do an electric version of the C-Class? What are we going to call that? Wow. So I think what we're going to see is instead of doing absolute alphabet soup like EQ GLS or something like that, they're just going to have EQS SUV. They'll probably have EQC and EQC SUV with the next yeah. generation models, et cetera. It is, it is a bit confusing um but well, that's unfortunately where we so are now, and you've got you've got to say the type of like you've got to say the body style of your car in the name like what do you have i have an eqs suv like it, it i don't know it seems so strange it seems so strange to me i guess when you're mercedes and you've got 30 different models there's only so many names to go around right yeah exactly but what did you think about speaking of the eqs what did you think about the eqs suv yeah, so Mercedes, uh, Gordon Wagoner, the, the head of Mercedes Design, he's obsessed with minimalism. He wants to get rid of every, you know, uh, shoulder line, every cut line, every bit of body sculpting. He's all about smooth, you know, it's almost like a bar of soap on wheels. Um, uh. It's going to be interesting to see how it ages. I think um, they've definitely gone down. I mean, the interior is a knockout. I think the new hyper screen inside looks fantastic. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly sold on the outside. I think it looks like a smaller car than it is. I think yes. the design is designed to make it shrink. The problem with that, of course, is if you're buying a massive, more than five-meter-long flagship SUV, you want it to be imposing. You want it to dominate the road. You don't want it to blend in. And I feel like it looks a little bit uh, – it's, it's sort of trying to blend in and downsize stylistically a bit too much for my liking. It looks a bit grand EQA. For my taste, yes, exactly. So, yes. And that's Can't not great for a flagship SUV. And I do, look. I mean, minimalist lines I like, but I just I I'm I'm somebody who likes more kind of angular, kind of crisp styling. And these latest Mercedes designs just are all a little bit too slippery, a little bit too too curvaceous for me. And I'm concerned that they they might actually end up either looking kind of weird in person or worse, looking bland. Because we've seen companies in the past um, introduce a rewind to Cadillac in the 80s. They downsized their Eldorado and Seville. Of course, only I could freaking bring up 80s Cadillacs in, in, in an article, in a podcast <laughs> about modern Mercedes. But, you know, they, down, they downsized two of their key models and they were more efficient. They handled better. They were better packaged, but they were designed to look like they were better packaged. They were designed to look more compact and more efficient. And people that were buying Cadillacs, and I think that's that's a very similar type of person to the kind of person that's buying a flagship SUV today, uh, they want something that has presence. So if this does look a lot smaller or a lot less expensive outside than it actually is, that's not good news for Mercedes. Mm. Well, we can to hear your thoughts, podcast at carexpert.com.au and uh, head to the site, check out the photos, let us know. Time to get stuck into this week's news. Moco BP are planning local EV charger network. This is uh, quite interesting. Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of this now, Mandy. Uh, companies that have operated a lot of fuel stations are, are seeing the potential in EV growth and deciding to install public chargers. So BP's done a deal with 
Australia's uh, world-renowned uh, electric car fast charging producer Tritium, which is actually now floated on the NASDAQ. Um, so it's an IPO'd company um, with huge hype. It powers the Ionity network of fast chargers across Europe. And, um, you know, now Australia is going to enter the same sort of boat. So BP's bought just under a thousand charges as part of the first tranche of charges that it will buy. But this is a multi-year deal. So they're going to buy a heck of a lot more than that. Um, in the UK, BP Pulse, which is a business that BP set up, is is sort of the parent company for its fast charging infrastructure. So you get like a, some sort of NFID card and you can tap it and you can get access to charges and any, any BP servo. And ultimately, that's what it's going to get to in Australia as well. Um, so, you know, you've got people fueling up with petrol and diesel and you've got people charging their EVs in the same spot. 7-Eleven's going to do this through its mobile partnership. I'm sure Shell is planning similar. Ampol's doing similar. You're now seeing, you know, the question often comes up about fast charging. How do I charge my electric car on the road? Well, there is a massive network of petrol stations already out there with real estate and space. All I have to do is buy a couple mm-hmm. of fast charges and the problem sort of solves itself. And I think this is the beginning of that. The only thing is now to make sure that as electric car sales grow, that public infrastructure grows with it. Um, and there's some government money on the table to help. But the more we see this sort of stuff, the better it's going to be for EV drivers. And the best thing about this deal, as I sort of said before, is Tritium, the Australian company, is involved as well. So there's a really nice Aussie angle. So I thought it was a really telling story and a sign of things to come. Now, Will, why is the ACCC taking Honda Australia to court? (sighs) Yes, another week, uh, another... um car company being taken to court by the ACCC. Um, <laughs> well, I just interject there, Will, so sorry. Yeah. Before, but I think by my count, there are, what, four car manufacturers currently in federal court appeals or hearings. Really? General Motors is there, Mercedes is there, Honda is there, and uh, I've just Mazda was in the news Mazda as well. Mazda was recently there, the ACCC has appealed a federal court. Was it a federal court finding? I can't recall. But Despite that, there are a number of car manufacturers currently finding themselves hauled into court, which says something about maybe, you know, holding some of these multinational OEMs to account when they misbehave. Toyota is another one. There we go. Their diesel particulate filter. Oh, yes. um, that was a big one. Fiasco. So, so I think it's a really interesting that this is actually part of a wider trend. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you now, Will. <laughs> so basically, the consumer watchdog has commenced uh, federal court proceedings against Honda for allegedly telling customers that two dealerships had closed when they were still operating. Um, so these uh, franchise contracts that these two particular dealerships, uh, Astoria Honda and uh, Tynan Motors, uh, had, they were actually ended by Honda ahead of their um, scheduled end date. Now, what the ACCC is alleging is that Honda Australia represented to customers between January and June 2021 that these two dealerships either would close or had already closed, and so they therefore no longer be able to service, you know, customers' Honda vehicles. Um, So an example is uh, they were sending automated text messages to uh, some Honda owners saying, hey, your previous service dealer is closed, so please find your nearest Honda service center here. Now, that's despite the fact that those dealerships were still operating as independent dealerships, they were still continuing to service vehicles, including Hondas. Um, so the ACCC basically is saying that, that Honda uh, told customers by email, by text message, by phone calls. Um, you, can, you can read the whole, 
the whole log of, of interactions uh, that have been published um, saying that they needed to visit a different Honda dealership for servicing. What? Why uh, would so, Honda do this? Oh, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to speculate. But what, what the ACCC has said is that um, they allege that Honda deprived customers of the opportunity to make an informed choice about options for servicing their car in favor of a Honda-linked dealership, which may have been less convenient, more costly for them. We also allege Honda caused harm to the Astoria and Tynan businesses by falsely claiming that they had closed or would close, which may have led customers to have had their service so their Honda vehicles serviced elsewhere. Uh, Honda Australia in turn has released a statement saying that they're cooperating uh, or that they've cooperated with the ACCC's investigation of this matter. They're reviewing this recent filing by the ACCC. Uh, at this stage, they're unable to comment further. Uh, so just for a little bit of background, uh, the company terminated 36 of its dealerships franchise agreements effective from June 30, 2021 as part of its restructure and shift to an agency sales model. Astoria and Tynan had actually been selling Honda vehicles for approximately 50 years. Uh, so in their submission to the to the Senate inquiry, uh, Astoria Honda had some things to say, um, chiefly that they'd been told without any prior notice on March 23rd and 2020 that their agreement was just going to end about two years early um, and that you know, mediation was unsuccessful, that their compensation methodology used by Honda grossly undervalued the loss that the dealer suffered. Um, so, look, a couple of dealerships that have had uh, quite a few things to say about Honda. I think um, you're going to see a bit more of this. So I know that Astoria has now picked up a Great Wall Haval franchise um, and you're going to see more of this happening. Uh, that's sort of a trend as the Chinese brands start to sort of take over a big chunk of the market. But I think we're seeing a number of brands intimating they want to head down this path of direct-to-consumer agency-style sales channels that cut out the franchise dealer middleman to some degree. And I think what you're going to see now is precedents from a legal perspective being set around the conduct that an OEM, you know, does with its franchise dealers as it restructures. I'm not alleging anything at all, just saying that I think regulators are going to be keeping a very close eye on this to try and set some precedents around how this restructure happens. And when you're the first to do it, you know, you do face these sorts of hurdles. So it's certainly not sounding like Honda behaved itself in all of the right ways. We'll have to let the court decide all of that. But, um, yeah, it's a bit of a messy situation that continues to drag on. Mm, for sure. Well, let's move on to some good news, Moco. The 2023 Hyundai Palisade's been revealed and it's coming here. Yes. So the Palisade's a really interesting one, isn't it? Kia's got a version too called Telluride, um, which doesn't come here. But the Palisade is Hyundai's flagship SUV. It's even bigger than the Santa Fe uh, I think it comes in an eight-seat configuration. In fact, yes, it does come in an eight-seat configuration. Um, and it has that big American Yank tank design. And it's actually worked really well. People are buying them in droves. They're selling all that they can get. Um, it's a pretty good update, actually. So I think from a design perspective, it's a much more resolved, more intimidating, uh, more sort of wide butch front design now that I think really works well on the car. There's some new colours. There's a new sort of more rugged looking XRT trim for the United States. There's a bigger touch screen inside up to 12 inches with a 720p resolution. There's a Hyundai First digital rear view mirror and there's a Wi-Fi hotspot, some new USB-C points, a quicker, faster charging pad, a wireless charging pad. Um, it's also got some new features around like app-based remote start. 
It'll it'll debut Hyundai's new Blue Link smartphone to car system when it lobs in Australia later this year. There's also a bit more driver assist technology built into it as well. No engine changes, the same 2.2 diesel and 3.8 V6 petrol. But it, it looks like a really solid mid-cycle update. It just nips and tucks, it adds some more tech, gives it a better screen and just builds on what has become a really popular car here and a really fitting flagship for the Hyundai brand. So looking forward to that coming in Q3 and... Hey, I reckon Hyundai is going to sell every single one that it can get its hands on. It's already outselling the Santa Fe at, at this point, and wow. it is one of the better packaged cars in this class because like the Mazda CX-9 and the Toyota Kluger, it's been developed with the American market in mind. Uh, but those those two rivals, I find third row comfort is yeah, like wow. great, very great for kids, but not so much for adults. But you can actually comfortably fit adults in the third row of a Palisade, in in my experience. Maybe, maybe not quite, you know, scully tall, uh, but I can <laughs> certainly sit in there for for a decent length trip. So it's really nice to see that that Hyundai's given this uh, a significant number of updates and and finally giving it features that you've been able to get on the cheaper, smaller Santa Fe, like remote smart parking assist um, that you haven't been able to get on the Palisade. Yeah, if, if you haven't if you haven't used this those listening you can use the key fob to actually drive it as a remote control car so if you park what? If, if some you know noob parks terribly next to you and you can't get into your car without denting it you can actually stand at the front of the car and you can press a button on the key fob it starts the car remotely and pulls it out for you i've tried it it works it's brilliant um I also, there's one other feature about the Palisade. It's a tiny one, but I really like it. I remember my, my fiance and I, um, it was, it was, we had a, I had a Palisade press car pre-update, uh, and it was pouring down with rain. We had some takeaway food. We were eating in the car because we were really hungry and we couldn't be bothered going home. And it's got this mode in the touchscreen where you can have the sound of a log fire and it changes the ambient cabin lighting to be like a sort of warm red. And it actually feels like you're sitting in a lounge room with a log fire burning. It's one of those really naff Tesla style things that you think will never be relevant to you. But I have really fond memories of it because it was a really fun, you know, just dumb thing that you do with your partner where you sit down and just gobble down a burger and you've got a car that makes it feel like you're sitting in a warm lounge room. What's not to like about that? I will say the, the only thing that I think is missing from this update is any kind of hybrid or, or plug-in hybrid option. Mm. Uh, it was revealed in the US um, and if, if, if there was going to be an electrified version of the Palisade, they, they certainly would have announced it for the US market at least. I know that we still haven't gotten um, electrified Santa Fe's or Tucson's here. Um, but one, one thing that bothers me a little bit about the Palisade is if you want all-wheel drive, you have to get the diesel. Um, if you just want a petrol engine, you have to get front-wheel drive. Now, the, the Toyota Kluger lets you get a, a, an all-wheel drive V6. Mm-hmm. The Mazda CX-9 gets you get an all-wheel drive turbocharged four-cylinder. So that's that's one thing I think that the Palisade would benefit from. Hyundai has said in the past that for packaging reasons, they can't do a um, all-wheel drive V6-powered uh, Santa Fe or um, or Palisade. And I know that we also miss out on a turbocharged four-cylinder Santa Fe that's available overseas. So, you know, sometimes we, we do miss out on things. It's nice to see us finally getting Blue Link, though, um, because that um, a version of Blue Link has been available in the US for some time. And there's a lot of um, smartphone, uh, OEM smartphone apps uh, for, uh, for cars that just simply have not been available locally. So it's great to see that we're finally getting um, that technology here. Good stuff. And the very last story, Moko, the Lexus RZ electric SUV has been revealed. This looks like a concept. Yeah, it's been a pretty long-running teaser campaign. This 
Lexus has uh, essentially shown us this car already. Um, but yeah, so RZ450E is the full name, but let's just call it the RZ. It's kind of Lexus's version of the Toyota BZ4X and Subaru Solterra, two EV crossovers that were designed uh, alongside one another. This is the slightly fancier version. Stylistically, it's sort of a mixture of, as you say, Mandy, some pretty radical touches that obviously doesn't need to have a big grill at the front because it has no radiator. So rather than the typical Lexus spindle grill, it's got a sheet metal and bumper and headlight design that kind of hints at a spindle without there actually being one, but mm. oh, it's kind of interesting. Um, the rear window line is pure RX, the uh, rear full width tail light and space lettered badging is just like the new NX. So there are some, you know, uh, I guess allusions to other Lexus products, but <clears throat> I think it looks really good. Um, it's going to rival the Model Y from Tesla, the Audi e-tron, BMW X3, Mercedes EQC, Genesis GV70 Electrified. There's a long list of these medium SUV electric premium products that are out there. Um, 71.4 kilowatt hour battery, driving range target of about 400 Ks, which is pretty modest, I have to say. I'm, I'm a little, little disappointed to see that. Um, maybe they're just sort of, you know, under-promising and over-delivering Porsche style and it will actually do more. We'll have to wait and see until the production one actually arrives. Um, the interior, look, it uses a much more minimalist approach than Lexus's in the past have. It's got a massive driver-oriented touchscreen, um, very, very, very few buttons. Hopefully it's built like other Lexuses are and it retains that incredible material and textural quality that we know Lexus is for. Probably the big news inside is that it doesn't have a steering wheel. It has a steering yoke, um, <sighs> which allows Lexus to lower the binnacle uh, and also um, – I guess gives it a bit of a Tesla sort of edgy video game approach. I think there'll be a normal steering wheel offered. I don't think you could offer a yoke is the only option. There'd be regulatory hurdles to get over there. So I'd be surprised if there wasn't some sort of steering wheel offered down the line as well. I can see by your look, Will, that you're not a huge fan of the, uh, the steering yoke, which we'll get to in a sec. Um, some other cool features include um, it's got a dimming glass roof with 99% UV protection, just like a BMW iX. It's got a ton of acoustic work done to it, sort of a sealed front clamshell-style bonnet, a lot of underbody protection just to try and keep the noise down. Lexus says that after 10 years, it will still have 90% charge left in the battery, even if you hammer it wow. with DC charging. Um, it's also got a dual-motor all-wheel drive system, so it's got a more powerful front motor and a less powerful rear motor, but it can be very clever in the way that it uh, allocates torque from the front to rear axle. So on turn in, it behaves like a front wheel drive for more feel. And as you're exiting the corner, it behaves like a rear wheel drive by sending more torque to the rear for slightly more oversteery rear wheel drive feel. So looking forward to testing that to see if it actually works. Um, Lexus is promising that it's pretty dynamic. It does have a steering by wire system, a la the Infiniti Q50 from the early 2010s. I certainly hope Lexus has tuned it better than Infiniti did because that car felt like you were driving a video game rather than a real thing. Um, in terms of Australia, Lexus has said, and I spoke to the Lexus CEO not long ago about this, he said very emphatically that he would love to get it. He's very keen to get it. But as we've so often seen with electric cars in Australia, the likes of Europe, Asia, uh, particularly China and Japan, and the United States are going to get priority because they are where more demand lies for EVs. Australia is somewhere down the pecking order. The uh, Toyota version is expected to arrive by the end of this year. I don't think we'll see the Lexus RZ until 2023, um, but it'll be you know good to see Lexus finally embracing electrification beyond hybridisation. 
It actually wants 80% of its sales by 2025 to come from electrified vehicles, including hybrids. And uh, the RZ will play a big part when it arrives. What do you think about it, guys? I think it looks good. It's, as you've said, as you've, as you've detailed, it, it has a very familiar Lexus look inside and out without looking just old hat. Um, and certainly it seems to be a much more cohesive uh, electric vehicle than the UX300e, but it also has the benefit of being on a dedicated electric vehicle platform. So I, I think my big takeaway from, from your article was reading about how the power is actually sent to the ground. It sounds very interesting. It sounds like a car that I would be very excited to actually uh, take on the road and see how it handles in the real world. What do you think about that yoke steering wheel, though? Oh, God. <laughs> I just, I don't get it. Like, it just, it, it, it's change for the sake of change. Like, it, <laughs> but, but I don't want to sound like like a, a whiner, but I just, I don't understand what, what the benefit is. You can see the instruments a little bit better. Well, Peugeot just made a smaller wheel and put it down a little bit further. Um, so you still had something to, to properly grab onto, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> I kind of feel like when Tesla does it, it makes sense because Tesla's going to do Tesla things. But Lexus is this bastion of sensibility and it just it seems so counterintuitive that of all the manufacturers, it'd be Lexus that, that, that introduces a steering yoke. You would think it would be the last brand that would do something like this. It, it really would. And I think uh, the BZ4X was revealed with a yoke as well. But my understanding was that was for the for the Chinese market. Um, yeah, was, something I like yeah. that. I think it will be similar here. I'd be staggered if we see the Lexus RZ introduced without at least the availability of a conventional steering wheel. I feel like if this is something that's been developed with the Chinese market in mind, it might just be, oh, the yoke is it's very high tech. It's a very new age way of thinking when it comes to, to steering. So if you if you go over and look at the Chinese market, it seems like every second car there has got like an absolute full width screen spanning the entire length of the dashboard. So uh, what we're seeing in the Chinese car market is there's a real, real um, thirst for uh high-tech interiors so perhaps this yoke steering wheel plays into plays into that i'm just trying to imagine doing a three-point turn with a yoke yeah it's just yeah oh, it'd be almost impossible i'm sure some <laughs> tesla fanboy will tell you that oh man i got used to it so quickly it's great elon musk was, was so right to do this yeah the theory <laughs> around steering by wire is you can make it so that you need very small inputs to get very big results but uh, uh, yeah. you know I'd, I'd have to try it before i could make a judgment call on it because I, I think you might be right mandy <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh head to car today you click the news link for more Tony Crawford, the man who could talk for hours on any car with hand motions as an extra hello. Hello, Mandy. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean like, we all talk- love cars, right? Every single person sitting right here loves cars. That's why we're in this business, I guess. Exactly. I just love how you can talk for hours on something like a Ferrari 812 Superfast or a Suzuki Ignis. Like the yeah. options are endless. <laughs> I, th- I think every car has its quirks and – and uh, idiosyncrasies that are worth uh, worth talking about, you know. Yeah. Well, the cars you're going to talk about today are the Volkswagen Golf R and the Tiguan R. Mm. Um, let's start with the Golf R. Yeah. Do you think it's still the perfect hot hatch daily driver? That's a that's a double edged sword. That one. Um, yes, it is the perfect daily. Uh, it's part luxury, part luxury, part uh, big performance. It's you know, 0 to 100 now in 
eight seconds. You know, this is pretty quick car. Um, 4.8 seconds was a supercar 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, and this car's all-wheel drive. And actually, uh, interestingly, for those looking at buying a, a new Golf R based on the Mark 8, don't forget, um, I undertook a Porsche 911-992 Cabriolet in the wet um, inside when the bus lane was not a bus lane at a reasonable pace. And uh, this poor guy, he, he just uh, didn't know what hit him when he saw that Lapiz Blue Golf I go past him. I mean, my car, this car has gone up by 10,000, so it's now 65,990 plus on road. So uh, before everyone gets a bit all worked up, that's actually not expensive. It's gone up 10 grand, but as far as rivals go, there isn't any. There's just none. Um, yeah. You've got to go to an S3 to even get close to this thing um, in what it's got. It has got an Audi badge, but some people might like – I know a guy that owns a GT3 Porsche and a new Corvette, and he drives a daily as a new Golf R. Um, so that's the kind of buyer that is into this type of a vehicle for 65990 Super comfortable, crushes bumps, crushes potholes, crushes broken road. Um, I, I We had it on track, by the way, at Eastern Creek, and it, it put down some uh, – I don't know what the lap times were, but uh, there was no issue. I don't believe we could have gone any quicker in this car. It was very, very fast. What it lacks, though – is that real sharpness and that feedback that I'm craving in a car like this that you get from, say, a, a, a Honda Type R. I haven't driven the new one, but the old one, and the uh, current i30N Hyundai. They give you real genuine feedback so that you really feel like you're driving this car. Maybe the Golf is just too perfect and it doesn't give that feedback, but I thought the weight in the steering um, was masking some of that uh, feedback that I should have had. I, I just didn't know what those front wheels were doing, even though it was an incredibly capable car. And um, so, yeah, look, it is the perfect daily um, if you don't want to spend more than 70K plus on roads, but, you know, 65, 990, probably walk away for about 72. Doesn't have many options. Panoramic sunroof um, is one of them. I can't remember the other, but um, there's two options basically. Um, so yeah, people will scream about the price gone up 10 grand. Well, what hasn't gone up 10 grand? Your house has probably doubled. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I can justify, I think they, and, and certainly I can justify the price increase because everything has gone up, um, today. So I don't think it's a valid argument, frankly, it's got a lot more kit in it. Um, it's got torque vectoring which makes it on track. I was turning in really late in some corners and it was just crushing it. Croft, you know, the Golf R's always been kind of a luxury hot hatch equivalent. It's always been about refinement. I hear what you're saying about the price increases. Everything's gone up by a ton of money. Ten grand is a big jump though, and, and I'm not so sure we can just write it off. But what I'm curious about is, does it actually have a sense of engagement and, and does it actually involve you in the experience? Because the one criticism I've always had about Golf R's is they've always been a little bit kind of, I don't know, not soulless, but they just haven't had that last 5% that's made you actually love them. I've always respected them, but never loved them. Is this Golf R lovable? Not lovable for me. Uh, I, I was I made the um, I made the comparison in my review on carexpert.com.au that I think if you wanted to drive Targa High Country 
in the touring class, you'd probably go for a GTI if you wanted to stick with Volkswagen because uh, there is a little bit more involvement in a Golf GTI, even though it's nowhere near as quick. Um, you stick with that. And I think that's where we're getting to. I think it's a, it's a special type of buyer that doesn't really care about that driver engagement, that involvement, that you're right, they want luxury. It's not – I wouldn't call it luxury, Moco. I'd call it semi-premium because there is some hard mm-hmm. plastics that you do get on the, on the Golf Mark 8 down below the eye line. So, you know, we haven't covered that off yet. Uh, so I guess they've got to save money in some cases. But I get back to the rivals and what you've got to get to have that luxury, that daily, that all-wheel drive, that performance. Um, that I, I think it looks spectacular, by the way. Uh, I like the understated look on that car, and I think it's slightly less understated now because it's got that motorsport-derived rear, rear spoiler that sticks right out. It's almost a two-layer spoiler. Um, it's got some really uh, big intakes on the on the front bumper. Um, it looks pretty impressive. And Lapis Blue, I, I, you know, if I bought one of those, it have to be Lapis Blue for me. Forget about greys and whites and all that crap. I mean, just just go for the colours that suit the car. And Lapis Blue is is it for that? And it's got beautiful um, embroidery R's. I love the new R, by the way. It, it, you know, when you walk up to the car, the R shines at night. That sort of uh, running, riding script are—it's fantastic. That it really is. What it lacks, though, in terms of engagement, is is noise. Bizarrely, it, it it's um it's it you know it's uh not man-made. It's man-made noise, I should say, not natural noise. And there is a pure button, but I I did the pure button. And um, Willie, I'll get to you in a minute, mate. Um, I did the pure button. Uh, and you know, it's worse than the actual. I, I preferred the man-made noise. Um, Will. Well, thinking back to when you had the GTI, it definitely sounds like you were more enthusiastic about that. And I recall you took me for a spin in that. So, how do you feel uh, about the Golf's in-car tech, specifically the touchscreen and touch capacitive controls? Yeah, good question. I put it down as a negative for me. Um, you know, the complete uh, the complete uh, jettisoning of buttons and knobs is not the way to go. I, I'll say that quite clearly. Um, you know, the, the screens are fantastic. The two big screens are great. Um, and, they, you know, it's a step up from where they were. And, you know, they're right up there with, every, with everything else. But um, with not having a volume knob, not having a, um, uh, some uh, aircon dials, I mean, can we just have one volume knob and two aircon dials in every car, please? Because, you know, that's what we need. I don't want to sift through menus to be able to change the fan speed because that took a bit of uh, getting used to. And, you know, you, I, I kind of forgot. Uh, I'd done it once and then I forgot again. And it's really irritating on a hot day when you're stifling and you can't quickly uh, reduce the temperature of the in, in cabin, you know. like So I think everyone's complaining about that globally. Um, certainly all the press corps, and and I I think that's going to change. I think there's been enough voice internationally that, you know, that's a bit of a mistake and a bit of a presumption that we didn't want any dials. So it's not just Volkswagen. It's almost every manufacturer that's gone for the two big screens, you know. Well, I know we could talk a lot more about the Golf R Corp. We've got to get on to the, the Tiguan R now. Um, what are your thoughts on putting the R badge onto an SUV? I freaking love it. Um, <laughs> this car's got more engagement than the Golf. I can't believe I'm saying it. Really? But, uh, yeah, I, I actually asked to keep that car another four days. I'm not handing it back until 
this afternoon. Uh, so I've kept it another four days because I really, really enjoyed this car. And um, I had next-door neighbor who's got two brand-new Tiguans, and they said, what's that? And I told them about it, and, you know, they, they, they went and looked at it. They had a drive in it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they went and bought, swapped one of these normal Tiguans for, for this R. Um, they were enamored by it. Um, yeah, it's got way more – I mean, I'm, I'm driving this thing in the rain, giving it the beans out of corners, and there's just nothing – to upset this vehicle, it's just stunning, and you know we're talking sixty-eight, nine, ninety plus on road. So, you know it's under seventy grand for a high-performance SUV that's not just an engine that goes. This thing has been engineered. Um, again, torque vectoring, um, sport mode. It's got race mode, by the way. So now on the on the R cars, you've got a little blue lit. I love the blue too. It's like an iridescent blue. It matches the um, ambient lighting strips in uh, Golf R's where you have this beautiful iridescent blue and this button is glowing and you just hit that once and, and do a good solid press and you go straight to race mode. Well, that's what I've been driving it in because um, the adaptive suspension is good enough and compliant enough to drive around in race mode, even over all these potholes and this crap that we've got to drive around in Sydney these days because they haven't fixed all the potholes. Um, because they build roads poorly in uh, this country and one bit of water and they need to be redone and I'm sure there must be a deal with the road builder to fix these roads up at 12 o'clock at night at three times the price. That's another story I'll get onto. It's probably an op-ed. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Golf R Tiguan, yes, I'm all in. It's not to 105.1 seconds. That is very, very quick for an SUV, that, a midsize SUV that's got all the carrying capacity and, and to be very, very family-friendly, uh, good boot space. Um, that's where the Golf falls down a bit, by the way. It's 374 litres in the back. Still not up to standards in my book. Um if you if you need more space, you get the Golf R wagon, of course, because uh, we'll talk about that when we get to drive that. They're doing a launch program in about a month's time. So um, lots of R products. I mean, Mandy, like, how do I feel? I, I think they've done what they – I think it's a great move um, because this is, again, like the Golf R, there's nothing around this car that can compete for the money. You've got to go to like 90 grand or 89 grand for literally an SQ5 in terms of the space – um, you know, that's a hundred grand or, I mean, honestly, the, the Mercedes GLB 35, which I love, by the way, I think that car's amazing, but that, you know, on road, it's 107 K. This is 68, 990 folks. Get out there and go and buy one. If you want, you want a, a fast SUV, that's not going to break the, the budget. Um, I, I feel them and not quite the bolster of seats that the, which I thought was a bit odd. Um, Golf R seats are really well bolstered. They're like little racing pews, but this thing is kind of halfway there. Mind you, we did have this on track too, and it was incredibly – I think I was doing about 220 into Turn 1 um, uh, at, East, at Sydney Motorsport Park. So it is incredibly capable, and as I said, mid-corner you can give it the gas – and um, this car just hooks up and there's no loss of grip, no loss of traction. Um, it's quite a stunning car. I, and it does have a dial, by the way. It's got a dial for drive modes because it has off-road as well. But if you just hit the central button, you go to race again. Um, so you go through the modes, I should say. 
so it does have a single dial and it's got slightly easier controls. It's a different screen setup to the um, Mark 8 Golf. Um, slightly behind, I would say, but in some ways better because the even though the uh, aircon controls are a, a touchpad, if you like, haptic, it's actually right there in front of you and it's much easier. You don't have to get onto the screen to do that. That's below the actual infotainment screen. What, what's interested me is, you know, once upon a time, uh, Golf R was synonymous with the R brand, but now you've got this whole spectrum of R products. T-Rock mm. R is coming. Mm. Ureg R is coming later this year. But Tiguan R is actually expected to be the top seller of the bunch. Mm. I know the pre-orders were the highest for Tiguan R, certainly higher than Golf R. And what you hear out of the dealer network is they're getting a ton more interest on Tiguan R than they are on Golf R. So with that in mind, knowing the, the way the market's going, it almost seems like the hot hatch is kind of going away and a hot SUV is replacing it and is becoming today what the hot hatch was five years ago. And I wouldn't be very surprised. Maybe this is more of a comment than a question, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Tiguan R becomes the kind of new default R moving forwards. Uh, I think you're right, Moco. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of volume. I, I would, would not be at all surprised if Tiguan R will, will outsell Golf R even in the first six months. Um, I think they'll only be predicated on supply, um, that issue. But, yeah, you know, for another three grand, you've got all this extra space. It's certainly no less capable. It might be down three-tenths or three-tenths on 0 to 100, but who cares, right, with 0 to 100? It's completely irrelevant in uh, today's real world. But this car gives you, you know, I I always – when we bought the XC40 – uh, I really wanted all-wheel drive, and I know that it costs you more money and it's heavier and it uses more fuel, but I don't know. Like with all the rainstorms we've had, I'm really glad we did that because my wife drives down to Canberra to see one of our daughters that lives and works down there. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, torrential storms in a front-wheel drive, which it, it's safer than rear-wheel drive, but um, I want all-wheel drive, and, you know, this thing has it all. And torque vectoring, it's just a, you know, if anyone – understands that it's able to apportion torque to not only both axles but to each wheel. Um, so you get incredible um, instantaneous grip in, in wet weather. And I just think it's actually a safety feature now, not something that um, you, need to, you need to tick that box if you've got a family for me. That's just me, but um, I, I think it's amazing. They've, they've just, they've, you know, usually you sell, you know, piecemeal of these performance models, but I reckon this Tiguan R, like Moco said, could actually out-trump the cheaper versions because you do get everything in it. You know, it's loaded to the hilt with kit. Um, it, it looks fantastic with the four pipes at the back. Um, you know, I, I think people are. I'm really feeling really fantastic behind the wheel of this thing because I know people are looking at those four pipes and thinking, "What the frick's that?" <laughs> and um, well, I tell you what, it is, buddy. It's going to out blow you off the mark here because in your Audi or in your other prestige vehicle, I'll take Moco's line on this, and um, I want to trump those uh, prestige brands with my uh, semi prestige brand because. I feel great that I'm not having to spend more than seventy grand on on a performance SUV with all the luxury kit in it and space. Yeah. Well, Good luck to them. Yeah, T Rock R is coming, and I think that's even quicker. I think that's like four point nine. Um, interestingly, and you guys might be able to answer this, but the Golf R has has um, 
235 kilowatts and 400 newton meters. The Golf R wagon with the same engine has 420 newton meters. I think it's the particulate filter. Is it not that I, I, you might correct me and tell the listeners what what you know that's about? Need, you know who we need here. We need James, James Wong because mm. that, that that immediately came to mind. That nerd Wong yep. he would know the down to the engine code. He would know why there was a difference. He'd be, <laughs> he'd be talking as long as Croft about it. <laughs> well, I, I think it is about particulate filter and uh, the petrol particulate filter. Um, because it is the same engine, uh, I believe. As it's you know, we've we've been declassified as a hot zone, so we are getting a more powerful vehicles. And I'm not saying that's going to mean a lot of difference, but it just is interesting. I think the Golf R could do with another twenty. It, it certainly wouldn't hurt it. And um, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to have the full the full Monty in terms mm. of uh, newton meters because newton meters is more important than power to me, but has more pulling power, which is what you want. But yeah, good luck, Volkswagen. Yeah, big, big three cheers to those guys. Like they're they're coming out with product, uh, they launching so much product, and um, you know we we have to write all those reviews. So um, maybe they can have a rest for a while and bed it down for a bit before they launch anything more. Well, Croft, we'll give you a bit of a rest now. Um, those reviews are now live at carexpert.com.au. They they sound like a, a good jigger. Yeah. Um, great to talk, guys. And, um, you too. I uh, look forward to listening to this podcast in full. Now, Moko, most people who buy medium-sized SUVs only use it to go to and from work or to cart the kids around, but not to go off-road. So why did we decide to do an off-road mega test for this segment? Yeah, so this was a big project that we did a few weeks ago where we, we hired a facility that we use from time to time for off-roading and um, got 12 of the top-selling medium SUVs into the same space. So we're talking Toyota RAV4, Mazda CX-5, Kia Sportage, Hyundai Tucson. I won't name them all because I'll be here forever, but that class of vehicle, um, which accounts for about 20% of the total market. So, you know, if you're going to do a mega test, you may as well do one on the segment that accounts for 20% of the market. <laughs> we, we sort of thought, you know, if we were to do a proper warts and all mega test with all 12 vehicles, you're going to end up with a novel and you're going to end up with a HBO, you know, four hour long special sized video because you're just not going to be able to squeeze all of the info in. So let's really hone in on some aspects of these vehicles that perhaps aren't so widely known. And they're sold on the promise of adventure. These SUVs, I mean, nobody's pretending that a Mazda CX-5 is a Toyota Land Cruiser. Nobody expects it. We know that none of these have low range. None of these have rigid live axles. None of them have front and rear diff locks. None of them have all these hardcore body-on-frame 4x4 features. But they are sold that, you know, if you want to go to the snow, if you want to go to a campsite, if you've got a muddy paddock, you might be able to go light-duty off-roading. Not to mention, most manufacturers sting you a few grand extra for the all-wheel drive option over the front-wheel drive equivalent. So it better be worth something, right? So with this in mind, we established a relatively simple uh, circuit involving some offset moguls to test chassis rigidity. Uh, we had two diagonally opposed wheels in the air to test how reactive the all-wheel drive systems were, how good the traction controls were, how effective the different torque allocation and stability control relaxing surface modes were. We had a loggy hill that we stopped halfway up 
and then went again to test the tyre traction, to test the torque allocation, just to sort of really sort the wheat from the chaff. We did a control with a front-wheel drive Nissan X-Trail that got nowhere, which proved that you had to have the all-wheel drive. And then we decided to just set them each loose and, and see what the results were. None of them got stuck, none of them got bogged, but there were some that performed better than others. We found that, um, you know, spoiler alert, and, and, and I really would encourage you to go read the feature and especially watch the video. It's a, it's a 45-minute long video that wow. uh, flies by and is, is incredibly uh, informative, in my opinion, with timestamps specific to each individual car if you only want to watch one car. But spoiler alert, um, the Subaru Forester did particularly well. Subaru has sold its vehicles for a long time as being truly all-wheel drive because unlike some others, it's not front-wheel drive that then engages the rear axle when it needs to when the slip detectors tell it to, but it's always running all four wheels. And funnily enough, that works because the Forester was the most impressive. It just walked through everything that we threw at it. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, the Honda CRV wasn't great, but then again, to Honda's defence, Honda's not pretending that it's a, a, an off-road focused car, the CRV. It doesn't even have any kind of terrain modes or anything along those lines. It's very much marketed as a city car, so fair enough. The, um, the Jeep Compass Trailhawk was disappointing. This is a vehicle that is sold as a proper off-roader, and it actually didn't do as well as we were hoping. The Forester actually outgunned it, so we were quite disappointed in that. Perhaps the biggest surprise packet, though, was the Chinese Haval H6. So the other Chinese manufacturer in this segment, MG, wouldn't give us an HS, so make of that what you will. But the, the Haval H6, it, it did really well. It was probably, the, <laughs> in fact, it was the second best performer on Log Mountain. Um, and when you consider it's a dual-clutch gearbox with a peaky turbo engine from an unknown brand, I mean, nobody knew what the hell would happen. And it actually walked up. It outdid the Outlander, it outdid the X-Trail, it outdid a lot of better-known competitors in this very niche test. So I thought it was really revealing. Um, I'd encourage anybody listening to this to go, particularly go watch the video. I think it's one of the best videos that Car Experts ever done. And I say that as someone who wasn't involved in its production, so it's not like I'm talking myself up here. Um, but really, really interesting. The fundamental answer, if you do want to do light duty off-roading, should you pay extra for the all-wheel drive option? The answer is yes, because front-wheel drive will get you nowhere. The second part of it is, do these sort of city-focused soft rotors actually have some off-roading cred? And the answer, again, is yes. Most of them will get you further than you expect they will. They're not going to get you as far as a Land Cruiser will. But you know what? They're not afraid of muddy creeks and puddles and things like that, as we hope this test shows. Uh, so, Mike, I, I so I made sure I was down there for the mega test because I'm not going to miss a mega test. That was actually my first. Um, but uh, I remembered as well that there were a few vehicles uh, that disappointed a bit in Log Mountain because they flashed up an error message. Yeah, well, logistically speaking, Will, when you've got to pick up 12 different cars and move them from one place <laughs> to another, having all hands on deck is great. So when you said you wanted to fly down from Brizzy to help, I think everybody was all ears. Um <laughs> Yeah, look, so I, I, I actually, um, I'll, I'll leave it to, to, to people to go read the story and watch the video to see which ones had, you know, particular fails. But there were Good a couple teaser. that actually had uh, their all-wheel drive systems overheating. They did flash up error messages and say that, oh, we're doing too much. We can't handle all this um, after a not huge amount of attempting to get up a loggy hill. Um, now, none of them conked out or broke down or anything like that. But to flash up error messages that quickly, 
doesn't strike me as being particularly fit for purpose. And I love the fact that we were able to stretch these cars, not to the point where we returned them broken, but we found some pressure points where they didn't quite stack up. And I thought that was really revealing. Okay. Well, there's a there's a really good teaser for you to go and watch the video and find out which ones. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, as, as Marco said, uh, please hit the site, check out the article, check out the video, and, um, yeah, comment away if you have any questions. All right, that's an end for this week's podcast. Can you give us a rundown of cars we've got coming up next week, Moco, please? So, yes, I've just had a look at next week's calendar, and I never like seeing more cars than people. You know, we've got X number of, uh, of journalists in our Melbourne office, and when there's more cars in the calendar than people, I know it's going to be a busy week. Um, but we've got some really interesting metal coming through next week. We've got uh, a fantastic twin test, the, the just-launched Haval H6 Hybrid, going up against the top-selling Toyota RAV4 Hybrid, sorting out the hybrid wheat from the chaff. Um, we're also doing a, a test at the moment, including the Kia EV6, Polestar 2, and Tesla Model 3, so three of the most... Uh, impressive, affordable-ish electric vehicles that you can think of. The Toyota Kluga Hybrid and Kia Sorento Hybrid are also cohabitating the garage next week. So it's a monster of a week for comparisons. Um, And then we've also got uh, the new Lexus LX, which is the Japanese Range Rover, the Lexus version of the Toyota Land Cruiser. Um, I recently was about to attend the national launch of that and then was diagnosed with COVID uh, about an hour before before the event. So um, we had to get this car into the office instead of attending the launch for our first crack behind the wheel. So very grateful to Lexus for facilitating that. Um, We've also got the just updated uh, Volvo XC60 in Sydney with Kurt. Not sure what you're driving up in Brizzy there, Will. Um, Looks like we've got a Mazda 3 floating around. Just a bit of a revisit, a bit of a reminder of one of the top selling cars that we haven't had in a while, um, which is incredibly important to do. Um, But yeah, we're looking like we're going to have a very busy week. Absolute base spec Mazda 3 hatchback. So I'm actually excited to get behind the wheel of it. And we've got, as you know, it's uh, we just had the Easter long weekend. It's a long weekend this weekend, I believe. Yes, Sanzac Day. Mm. And then the week after, (laughs) for some reason, we have another long weekend in in Queensland because we just have to jam everything into one month apparently and then have no public holidays for the rest of the year until December. So. Yay. So people will be having a three-week holiday, basically. <laughs> yeah, any, anybody smart things. would have taken uh, time what, off of work and just tended to public servants. We're going to take all that time off. We've got stuff to do. <laughs> I know. I know. I'll, I'll just end up working during it anyway. <laughs> We're working at a startup. We never stop. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Costello and William Stockford, been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, Will. 